one of our good fortunes is that we have easy access to teachings from enlightened masters in this day and age. We've been listening to teachings from Ajahn Chah and his biography over the last few weeks. Although the Tripitaka is still with us and so we can read about the Buddha and his disciples and their teachings. Sometimes they appear a long way away in time. Whereas <clears throat> somebody like Ajahn Chah, there are those who uh, live with him, practice with him, so he's within living memory and his teachings are available and now translated as well. So we can get a flavor of what the teachings sound like coming from an enlightened mind in this day and age. Something <clears throat> Ajahn Chah emphasized throughout his teachings was Samana Sanya, the perception recollection of being a samana for obviously for the ordained sangha and uh, as we chant regularly the reflections ten reflections of uh, a bhikkhu the first few are what are often uh, considered sort of the heart of being a samana <coughs> so I uh, we translate it as I'm no longer living the lay life, so I no longer practice or follow worldly views and ways. We've given that up now as a samana. A samana is somebody who's slightly different. <coughs> in the sense, in the time of the Buddha, you know, there was the caste system in India. And ordaining as a Buddhist monk, following the path of teaching that the Buddha gave, the Dhamma, the Vinaya, went against the cultural norms and traditions at that time. Didn't bring the caste system into the Sangha. So there's the <coughs> story of uh, that group of bhikkhus who ordained the ones who were uh, from the royal Sakyan family, and then Venerable Upali, who was a barber, a more humble, from humble background, and the Buddha ordained him first, so that the ones from the royal background would have to always bow to him, and as a way of just reminding them that once you enter the Sangha, you set aside your worldly aims and values. <coughs> so like in the Sangha, there's no place for, say, racial prejudice, cultural prejudice. We have rules based on what we, what is appropriate speech, appropriate behavior between each other. So we, even just to make jokes about somebody's background, their family, their upbringing, their education, and so on, 
is considered inappropriate for a samana. And in a Buddhist country like, uh, say, Thailand, that's understood generally in the community. Yeah, samana, somebody who's rising above <coughs> the more worldly values that people often hold to and cause a lot of conflict and suffering in society. The second thing that's uh, emphasized in Samana Sanya is in Thai they say Pu Song Sin, meaning one who upholds precepts and virtuous behavior. <coughs> and it's just established in the mindset of Buddhists that in a Buddhist country that a Samana is somebody who is harmless. They don't harm themselves, they don't harm others. They, ha they follow precepts. They're an example in society. They follow the Patimokha. <coughs> They're reliable in that respect. So people can trust seminars if they're practicing properly. So they come to a monastery, they know it's a place where they're safe, they're not going to get harmed in any way. And that's part of Samana Sanya. You see a monk, there's a certain expectation. Sometimes monks might forget that. So last year there was an example. A monk was caught on film uh, being very cruel to a dog. And that went on to the national news in Thailand. <coughs> And it's not that people are unreasonable. They know Buddhist monks still have kilesas, still have greed, anger, and delusion in their mind. But there's also a certain expectation that once you put on the robes, shave the head, and act as a samana, then you have to have a certain level of restraint. So this uh, monk being very cruel to a dog was, caused a lot of... Uh, unhappiness in society. Just because the picture doesn't fit, it's not the perception of a samana. The last one is, as uh, we chant, everything I have and use is a gift from others. <clears throat> as a samana, we have a certain responsibility because everything I have and use is a gift from others. We don't have any means to earn money. There's no kind of commercial activities in monasteries, seminars. We're totally dependent on people's goodwill. And we have a responsibility not to exploit that or not to <coughs> be indulgent or extravagant in the way we live. We have to live simply, frugally, carefully in the way we use the requisites and the, the offerings that we receive. These three uh, things are kind of in the mindset of a samana and in the society that supports samanas. It's kind of widespread perception that this is how a samana behaves. They're, they're not prejudice in their behavior, they're not uh, greedy or exploitative, and they don't harm others. <clears throat> Ajahn Chah emphasized that over and over again. There's daily reflections. 
one of the ways that um, we actually practice that is through developing purity of sila. <clears throat> Often when we come into the practice of Buddhism and study Buddhism, we're coming from a background of doing meditation, retreats, vipassana and so on. But as we know, the Buddha always emphasized that you won't successfully develop the Eightfold Path or Samadhi or Vipassana or the wisdom that will free you from suffering unless it's founded on a solid foundation of sila or purity of sila. <clears throat> so over and over again, Ajahn Chah would encourage monks to reflect on their sila regularly, not just on the day when we recite the Patimokha, but on a daily basis. Soon after the Buddha entered Parinibbana, um, one of the famous commentaries of Sudhimaga started <coughs> explain the uh, four different kinds of Parisudhisila, <coughs> which are very practical reflections <coughs> for our daily practice and reflecting on the Patimokha itself, Patimokha Sangwara Sila. Am I following the rules of the Patimokha? Am I restrained in the Patimokha? Again, taking on the precepts of a Buddhist monk, we're <coughs> taking on that responsibility to follow the Patimokha. So we study the Vinaya, we, often we actually learn the Patimokha. And then we reflect on it daily. <coughs> the second is Indriya Sangwara Sila. Sense restraint, restraint of the senses, literally in practice of mindfulness with sense contact and then developing skill around protecting our sense contact with mindfulness, with wisdom. <clears throat> Obviously when we look at the arising of suffering, you know, sense contact plays a vital role because sense contact gives rise to vetana, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, gives rise to dunha, craving, gives rise to upadana, Bawa, Jati, and so on. <clears throat> Sense contact is where our mind meets the world, the objects, the sense objects of the world. And it's where craving and attachment is constantly arising, being reinforced. The less mindfulness we have, the more craving and attachment arises and intensifies. <clears throat> So it's actually a vital part of our practice on a daily basis to practice sense restraint, indriya sangura sila. That means sometimes to avert the eyes from stimulating visions and forms. So 
wisdom, the obvious one is say, to not look or stare at forms that will bring up lust, bring up anger, bring up greed. So maybe the forms of other people is probably the most common. <clears throat> it could be images on screens, magazines and so on. It could be inanimate objects, yes. dwelling on requisites or food that we want, looking at them, seeking them out and so on. So sense restraint becomes part of our daily practice. Sense restraint around unpleasant sense contact. Because wherever we live in the world, there'll always be some unpleasant sense contact. You know, a good example might be just loud noises. <clears throat> when you're practicing meditation, it's easy to get angry and irritated by noises. So we let our mind go out, form an opinion, a perception about a noise, a noise like a chainsaw or a loud bird or a loud car or something like that. <clears throat> a sense restraint might be just knowing that sense contact, even if anger arises, irritation arises, to establish mindfulness, try to reflect this is just unpleasant sense contact, unpleasant, unpleasant sounds and so on. The third practice, purity of sila, is uh, achiwa parisuti sila. When we chant the chant the eightfold noble path, <clears throat> they don't explain it very well in much detail. They just say the bhikkhu practices right livelihood, sama achiwa. It doesn't go into what that is. If we're a lay person, right livelihood is obviously earning your living in a way that doesn't kill, harm or exploit others. You're not buying and selling unwholesome objects like firearms or drugs, whatever. For a bhikkhu it's you know, how you obtain your requisites. Again, part of this is in the Patimokha. We have Nisagya Pajitya rules, Pajitya rules about how we obtain requisites <clears throat> the proper way, the practice of pawarana, invitation, not asking strangers, not asking people for things. Ajahn Chah even used to say, don't ask your family for things. If you really want to train your mind to give up its greed and its attachment, just don't ask anybody for anything, just practice that. That's how we practice purity of livelihood, is being aware of how we obtain our arms, our requisites, not to bother others, not to exploit or harm others, and so on. <clears throat> the last kind of purity of sila is uh, nisita pacheya sila. It's like purity in the use of the requisites. So maybe requisites that we've come by in a proper, appropriate way, but then we still have to consider how to use them. So we have our daily reflections, you know, wisely reflecting, I use this arm food, I use this lodging, these robes, and medicinal requisites. It's about wisely reflecting on 
the requisites that we have, how much do we need, <clears throat> the things that we have, how well do we use them, are we being frugal, careful, are we being wasteful, <clears throat> and so on. Developing wise reflection around that. Everything we have and use is a gift from others in the monastery, so everything can be a co object for wise reflection in, in this way. Often we become obsessed with things, especially in a monastery where we have a lot of time to think. So sometimes you see monks become very obsessed, say, about food, diet. And it's, it would appear they, they forget what their, their practice of Nisita Pachaya Sila is more like, how can I get the best diet for me according to my knowledge, my views, my opinions and so on. And obviously if you're in a monastery with a lot of food, then maybe you can to a certain extent <clears throat> pick and choose what food suits you. But also if it becomes an obsession, then maybe it also becomes a great source of mental blockage. You don't see the craving and attachment forming around something as simple as food. In the end it's just food, four elements that come in to keep the body going for a day and a night energy and very easy to get caught up into in dietary requirements, the contents of the food, the vitamins, proteins and so on, even to the point where some, some monks forget themselves and actually ask, start asking for certain kinds of food. That's just one example. And these four purities of sila, Ajahn Chah used to emphasize over and over again, because it's like building a solid foundation for your practice. <clears throat> Even if you learn all the techniques of samatha and vipassana, if you're not re reflecting and developing purity of sila, then the whole house falls down, as it were. It's not built on s solid, firm foundations, built on shaky foundations. Ajahn Chah often used to point out how sometimes <clears throat> monks fall down because they develop some strong samadhi experiences and develop some peace, even blissful states might regularly be able to attain that sit meditation for hours, walk for hours but samadhi itself may not yet be purified by right view, right understanding, right sila so they're suppressing some of their unwholesome attachments, cravings even to the point where they can go off and commit serious grave offences against the Vinaya. Obvious ones like having sexual relations with a woman or stealing, doing things with money, acquiring money and property and so on. But because they have developed some samadhi, they just suppress their own sense of shame, their own awareness of the kilesas. And so once in a while you, you get stories coming up where monks have done this and people are often confused. They, say they seem to have such good meditation, such deep samadhi, they seem to be so, such, have such powerful metta and so on. <clears throat> but then it turns out that they can do some very shameless things. 
So even samadhi itself is not yet a guarantee of purity. It has to be backed with sila. The sila has to be backed by a right view. Sajjan so Chai used to talk a lot about how the practice is a circle or circular. You, know, you need sila to develop samasamati. You need samasamati to develop panya, true insight. But to keep sila, you also need wisdom. So you need wisdom to keep the precepts, and the precepts develop samadhi, and they support the development of more wisdom, which develops or supports the practice of sila. It's like circular, each factor of the path supporting the others. Another part of the Samana's life that Ajahn Chah used to emphasize over and over again were the, the basic themes of meditation, perhaps summarized in uh, what they call the four protecting, protective meditations, the Anuraka Gamatanas. The first is Buddha Anusati, recollecting the Buddha every day. This is why in the monastery we have often have periods, morning chanting, evening chanting, where you recollect the qualities of the Buddha. <clears throat> we can do it as a reflective exercise. You reflect on the, literally on the qualities of the Buddha, go through the chants, Aitipiso, Bhagawa, one by one, read commentaries, read the suttas. <coughs> Familiarize yourself with the different qualities of the Buddha. Other people are more visual, so they might like to actually just visualize Buddha statues, Buddha images of the Buddha as a form of samatha meditation. Others just recite Buddha, but it has a meaning for them. And constant reference back to the teacher, to the Buddha, is a source of great strength in our practice. It brings out faith, inspiration, which is like the fuel of the practice and gives us energy to keep going. And because the Buddha himself was, you know, we believe, the wisest person that ever lived in the world, <clears throat> it's a constant source of uh, wisdom, advice, guidelines, instructions in our practice. Teachers often say... <clears throat> We're a bit like the old bronze Buddha statues. When you live in Thailand, in the old days, all the Buddha statues, they weren't covered in gold mostly, they were just bronze. And you leave them out exposed to the air over a period of months and they gradually go dark. So then every few months, often on a Buddhist festival day, the monks have to come and get brasso and clean up the Buddha statue, get rid of all the, the dark faded look and you end up with a shiny Buddha. But then again over a few months it gradually fades. It's sort of imperceptible how it changes from shiny to faded, but it's always happening because of nature. The teachers say our minds are like that. You know, when we don't reflect on the Buddha, and little by little we gradually forget the Buddha. And we don't practice the sila and reflect on our, reflect on our sila, then little by little the mind 
loses its glow, the glow, the radiance of sila, and so on. So we have to keep developing <coughs> our sila, keep developing meditations regularly. So buddhānusati, you know, the first of these four protective meditations, something you can always turn to. Even if we have a main meditation object, say the breath, for instance, we also need some of these other recollections and meditation themes to bring up, sometimes to inspire ourselves, sometimes to deal with certain kilesas that arise, maybe a feeling of discouragement, feeling of being lost or whatever in the practice. The second of these is uh, a supagamatana or gayagadasati, in the reflection on the body and particularly the unattractive aspects of the body. Something we have to reflect on over and over again daily as a daily practice and it protects the mind from getting lost back into the worldly states of mind of seeking that which is beautiful, getting obsessed with that which is attractive, getting lost in the world or intoxicated with the world. So over and over again we go through the body you know, from the 32 parts, the four elements, the ten corpse meditations. To do that we need to practice, we need to get some information. So sometimes it's useful to look at videos or read anatomy books or if we have a chance when you're in the forest sometimes you come across a dead kangaroo or dead deer or something. Remind ourselves of this body, what it looks like under the surface. We take visual images and information that we've gathered and then we start developing it mentally. Create our own images, keep looking under the surface. You know. The way of the lay person, the way someone who's not a salmoner is always to look for that which is attractive, identify with that which is attractive. As men we attract we identify with the attractive aspects of a man, however that presents itself in our perceptions. So men usually like to look strong, virile, impressive in different ways. Women attracted to their own femininity and the way they look, the beauty and so on. And the Buddha said the more you attach to the manly qualities if you're a man or the more you attach to the female qualities if you're a woman, the more lust you'll have. So that's where lust comes from, the attraction between the opposites. So the more you identify with femininity, masculinity, the more you have problems with lust, the more you get caught up in attraction for the world, sexual desire and so on. So the practice of a supagamatana is directly going against this. <clears throat> this is why even monks often they don't like to do it. Sometimes you ask monks, you know, when did you last do some body contemplation? It might be months ago. Ajahn Chah encouraged us to do it daily. Anuraka Gamatana, it's something that protects you and it's something that you have to protect over or watch over as well. Bring up the reflection on the unattractive aspects of this body. 
could be anything. You know, you, every day we go to the toilet, you contemplate, you eat food and the pleasant, attractive aspect of that food <coughs> lasts for about a few seconds. As it goes into your mouth, you like the taste and then it's gone, mixed with saliva and then down into your stomach, mixed with digestive juices, goes through our bowels and then comes out as poo. The majority of the chain of natural chain of processes with food is unattractive. And yet we put so much emphasis on the attractive side, the smell, the taste. And we try to run away from, get away from anything that's unattractive. And nobody likes to hang around in toilets. Even walking through the forest, you notice there's poo everywhere. All the different animals, they just poo everywhere. They urinate, they poo everywhere. It's all come from food and it's a human body or an animal body that does that. Every day we get sweaty, greasy, we smell if we don't wash. <coughs> Our clothes smell if we don't wash them. Our bedding smells if we don't wash it. Every day our body is showing us the truth. So we have all the information there, but we have to take the time to start looking, becoming mindful of the unattractiveness of this body. And the hardest part is always taking the skin off, visually using your imagination to look under the surface of the skin to see you know, the blood vessels, the flesh, the organs, the bones. We don't like that. We don't like to do it. Sometimes we actually have physical revulsion towards doing it. It makes us feel sick. And yet it's protecting us, it's protecting the seminar. The examples they hold up, you know, those monks who develop their supasanya, develops to the point where even with their eyes open, they're constantly contemplating the super of the body. So whether they're looking at themselves, looking at others, they're no longer focused on the beauty of the body, they're now focused on the unattractive aspects. So they see people as skeletons, they see people as pools of blood or flesh or bones. And by the standards of society, it sounds like a horror movie, but if your mind is peaceful, with mindfulness, and you're just investigating the truth. It's not like a horror movie. You're just seeing the truth of the way things are in a peaceful way. And it makes the mind free, free of lust, free of sensuality. So it's a regular practice. We reflect on the Buddha, we reflect on the unattractiveness of the body every day. If you're ever uncertain what to do, how to spend your time, well, there's two practices already you can do. The third is metta bhavana. Again, we regularly need to be developing, cultivating metta, because we all have the habit of going towards negativity, living with other people. We quickly pick up on their faults and the aspects of other people we don't like. So we have to cultivate metta. Sometimes we turn it on ourselves when we're not meeting with the success in our practice that we wish for. <coughs> we 
become negative towards our own self-view. As a samana, we have no choice but to be developing metta and the other Brahma-viharas. It's the only way we can really calm the mind down, especially in the beginning. It leads straight into the development of sila and samadhi, developing compassion, tolerance towards others. You know, even if you do nothing else in a day, if you develop some kindness and compassion towards yourself and others, your mind has already done something very wholesome. But it's something we need to keep topping up. You know, we lose our metta very easily under pressure, when we get discouraged, when we get ill, when things go wrong, we lose our metta very easily. So it's a protector, protecting against negativity. That's why again, why we chant different chants to do with metta, developing cultivation of metta over and over again. So until the mind is established in wholesome dhammas, in samadhi, then metta will always be dropping away and the mind can fall back into aversion very easily. <coughs> the last of the uh, protective meditations is maranarasati, the recollection of death. As we know, the Buddha encouraged us to recollect death, every breath in, every breath out. the very least we do chants, daily chants and reflections on death. But really it's not enough. We're developing it as a constant theme in our practice. If you think about it, you look deeply why perhaps your mind hasn't yet realized Nibbana. Often we associate Nibbana with, with death, the death of things that we're attached to, the end of things we're attached to. A lot of people are not yet ready for that. A reflection on death is actually helping us to understand Nibbāna better. Nibbāna is the cooling down of our attachment to the world, to this body, this mind, the bodies and minds of other people and the things of this world. When we recollect death, you're getting a, a very quick or easy or direct insight into Nibbāna the ending of things. And not the ending of good things, the ending of attachment, the ending of suffering. And of course we all have to die. There's no one who doesn't die. So bringing up wisdom, getting the mind used to the concept of birth, aging, death, arising, cessation. <clears throat> Whether it's the death of a mental state or a mood, or the death of a person. It's not that we're wishing for death and wishing for people to be, to die. It's just recognizing and witnessing the truth of this existence, that it's impermanent. Nibbana is the deathless. When the mind has seen through the impermanence, suffering, a lack of self in phenomena. So there's no longer any delusion, no longer any t attachment. The recollection of death, very good for confronting particular obsessive thoughts we have, anxiety about the future, uh, 
plans, all kinds of hopes and expectations in, in the more worldly sense that we might be building up that keep disturbing our meditation. You recollect death and it cuts through everything. Tomorrow is just not sure, it's not certain what's going to happen tomorrow, whether there'll be one. We don't know when we'll die. We know we'll die, but we don't know when. Death is uncertain. And death is certain, but when is uncertain. As a meditation might just reduce it down just to one word. Maranang, maranang, death, death, death is certain. Well, we can also contemplate it as a theme. You know, what does death and dying mean to me? The people I love and attach to, one day they'll have to die, one day I'll have to die. The separation that comes with death and so on. What is death? The, the body stops functioning. What happens to the mind at death? We can investigate in this way. It helps us to understand life better understand the mind and body better. These four meditation themes in the monastery are always themes that we can keep developing over and over again regularly, just like the four purities of sila. They're kind of, you might say, what Buddhists do and particularly what Buddhist monastics do. These are practices that are always there for us to take up. Other than that, Ajahn Chah, as we know, encouraged us to contemplate all the time. Having developed mindfulness using these techniques, develop some calm, then to contemplate your experience. To become clear to see the universal characteristics, Anicca Dukkha Anatta. So his particular reflection was how everything is uncertain, it's not sure. Our moods are not sure. The experiences of, of our day are not sure. We can't be sure what other people are going to be like, what things are going to come our way. Everything is not sure. How we like things or don't like things changes. Our views and opinions change. <clears throat> If you stay in the monastery long enough, you'll be able to witness this firsthand. How you might come into the monastery your first year with a whole set of opinions and views about Buddhism, about monastic practice, about meditation. You wait a few years and they'll have completely changed because they're not sure, not certain. One of the reasons Ajahn Chah was so, has been so popular and left such an impression on the world is he obviously had great skill in explaining the Dhamma and teaching the Dhamma, passing it on. Sometimes through, through his explanations, but you know, he wasn't somebody who had studied greatly in the world. He finished just a very basic level of primary school education he did study the scriptures in his early years as a monk. But it was his understanding through direct knowledge of the Dhamma, through his meditation, that helped him give the skills how to 
explain it, put it into terms that are easy for people to understand. And people used to ask him things like, oh, you have all these foreign Western disciples living with you. How do you teach them when you don't even speak English? He said, oh, it's just like buffaloes. You just have a rope and sometimes you pull them a bit to the left, sometimes you pull them a bit to the right and they get there in the end. Your monastic training is a bit like that. If you keep practicing, often you don't need to do a whole lot of things. You just keep reflecting on your experience and adjusting. Keep turning yourself towards the middle way, meaning the Eightfold Path. Keep developing the factors of the path. Sometimes he was very good at explaining more profound or more difficult concepts. Like one I remember, one of the first talks I translated was the uh, key to liberation or unshakable peace. I didn't actually finish it till I was about seven reigns, but I actually started when I was a novice monk, when I was first learning Thai. Thought it was a good way to learn Thai, to translate one of Ajahn Chah's talks. And going through the <clears throat> different conditions of the uh, dependent origination. It's just one mentioned in the talk. And this concept of bhava becoming upadana is a cause for becoming. Bhava is a cause for jati, birth. People often find becoming bhavas something not not so easily easy to understand. Ajahn Chah, very simple explanation, said it's like you have a orchard, an orchard of mango trees, and you have that sense of ownership, identification with them. Obviously, that's built up over time, so it's the Repetition of craving arising, upadana, attachment and clinging arising, and then there's bhava, there's this sense of ownership and identification with your orchard. It's my orchard. And that's the kind of, that's where your mind is fixed. You might say your mind be becomes that orchard. It's there, it's fixed there. So, of course, anything happens to that orchard, you know it, you feel it, you, you protect it from someone who might want to destroy it or harm it and so on. When I was a novice, I was just practicing translating that. And in the monastery I was staying in Wat Kern, and there's very little food. There's only a few of us staying there, and the villages there are very poor. So as a novice, I, was the, I was the novice, there was a couple of monks. My job was to try and eke out the meal, expand the meal a bit. After we got back from arms round, there'd be lots of sticky rice, a couple of fish, a couple of bananas or something, almost nothing. So I'd go to the kitchen, which is a very simple run-down kitchen. There might be some tinned fish there. So they'd have me open a tin of fish. I was vegetarian, so I didn't eat that. Occasionally there was mu uh, mushrooms, if they're in season, so the monks told me which mushrooms to pick and I could serve them. 
The other thing we, I could get was fruit from the forest. And there was a few mango trees and a few jack, jackfruit trees. So again, it's a matter of when they're in the season, you can get them. So some days my diet was just sticky rice and fruit. So if there were mangoes in season, they were quite important to my diet because that was the only extra I'd get from rice. And then sometimes there were a lot of monkeys in the forest. They'd come through and obviously they wanted to eat the mangoes as well. So I'd be walking through the grounds of the monastery. <clears throat> saw all the monkeys up in the mango tree and my first instinct was to chase them away. But because I was translating this talk and I was thinking about what Ajahn Chah said, it was like, oh, there's my attachment. So just had to practice renunciation and let the, the monkeys have their food. And the monkeys would move on. And then another day once there was some village boys had come across to the island because the monastery was an island in a boat. And they probably had nothing better to do. So I came out one day and I found them up the mango tree. And again, my instinct was I wanted to shout at them and say, I oh, don't take the mangoes, they're for the monks. But again, this is bawa. This is where your mind forms its attachment about something. And the more important to you, well, the stronger the attachment, the stronger the bawa dunha. So again, a very painful practice of just letting go and let other people or other monkeys just take the mangoes away. All of that was a debt of gratitude to Ajahn Chah. Things like that, we form attachments. Where your mind is, is where Bawa arises. You'd point that out all the time. So like a monk eating food in the eating hall at Wapapong, and there's a chicken crowing outside. So the monk turns and starts looking at the chicken while he's eating. Ajahn Chah just said, hey, your mind's been born in that chicken. Told him off. Very direct way of teaching, but using the ordinary experiences we have as human beings to point out how suffering arises in the mind. Where is your mind clinging? Where is it being born? It's born into food, it's born into possessions, it's born into other people. You keep looking at someone, thinking about them, where you become stuck on them and then you want to be with them. Or if you're thinking about them in a negative way, you, want, you start to hate them, you want to get rid of them. You can get born into buildings, lodgings, this is my kuti, my place. Everything can become a source of upadana and bhava arising. And this is one of the, our great, good fortune that we came across Ajahn Chana's teachings. It can help us to see some of these <coughs> more refined, more subtle aspects of the mind, how suffering arises. Obviously we have to do the groundwork, we have to do the practice, keep the precepts, develop the meditation themes and objects, and then contemplate, as he said. Contemplate over and over again. Where is suffering coming from? He used to say, if you attach a lot, you suffer a lot. You attach a little, you suffer a little. You don't attach, you don't cling, you don't suffer. So what is the mind of non-attachment like? Well, we have to practice. Practice developing mindfulness, continuity of mindfulness, 
contemplating letting go of clinging and attachment. And then sometimes we might experience a mind state that's very free, empty of attachment. We start to understand a little bit more what the mind of, of the area Pugalas is like, you know, a mind that is empty, non-clinging, still knows things, still understands, but it doesn't cling. We can only experience that through the practice. It's not something you can just learn by memory or by theorizing. It's something you have to develop through the practice of mindfulness, reflection, until you actually know for yourself. <coughs> so tonight is a uh, full moon night. It's uh, a night of Dhamma practice. We can uh, sit and walk as you like, and we'll be uh, having the chanting at 11.30 tonight. So maybe I'll leave these reflections with you. <coughs> 